Welcome to the Strategy Driven Podcast, Making Change Work, the problems of change management, bias, resistance, and push. On behalf of the entire Strategy Driven team, I would like to welcome you to this edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast, Making Change Work, The Problems of Change Management, Bias, Resistance, and Push. The Strategy Driven Podcast focuses on the tools and techniques executives and managers can use to improve their organization's alignment and accountability to ultimately achieve superior results. These podcasts elaborate on the best practice and warning flag articles found on the Strategy Driven website at www.strategydriven.com. In this episode, Sharon Drew Morgan, developer of Buying Facilitation, shares with us her insights on the difficulty in effectively implementing business change. In this, the third in a series of change management podcasts, we explore the problems associated with change management, namely bias, resistance, and push. And so now, without any further delays, let's get started. We are privileged to be joined by Sharon Drew Morgan, New York Times bestselling author and developer of a change management model based on buy-in that she's written about in her latest book, Dirty Little Secrets. Sharon Drew is the visionary thought leader behind Buying Facilitation, a decision facilitation model that focuses on helping buyers and those who would be impacted by the accompanying change manage their internal, unconscious, and behind-the-scenes issues that must be addressed before they purchase anything or buy into the requested change. She has served many well-known companies, including KPMG, Unisys, IBM, Wachovia, and Bose. Sharon Drew, welcome back to the Strategy Driven Podcast. Thank you, and I'm very excited about today's topic. I'm excited about today's topic, too. We've gotten great response from our first two podcasts on making change work, and for our listeners, this is the third in the series. I'd like just to start out with reminding all of those who might be joining us for the first time how we actually define change for the purposes of our Making Change Work series. And we talked about this in the opening podcast for those who would like to go back and listen to it. But we said that change is really fundamentally about achieving buy-in. It's about a system or systems that exist, people systems, process systems, they could be technology systems, but it's the systems that are being asked to do something differently. Change is about those systems buying into the change and being accepting of doing what they're being asked to do now that that is something new and out of the ordinary. And so it's from that definition of change that we're focused on for all of our Making Change Work podcasts. And tonight, we're going to talk a bit about the 
problems with change management, those being bias, resistance, and push. So, Sharon Drew, to start yeah. our conversation, I wanted to ask how contemporary change management models handle the resistance that often comes with any, any change trying to be introduced. I would like to state categorically that I personally believe that our change management models that we're using now create the resistance. Okay. I actually uh, did a search the other day, um, and I looked up uh, change and change management to see what the definitions were online, and there was one definition that included resistance as part of the definition. Oh, wow. So th there is an assumption that change creates resistance. And most of the books on change, whether it's by most of Argyris' books in Action Learning and uh, Sankey's books and Bill Isaac's work, their work incorporates resistance management. So the assumption that there will be resistance is built into the change model but they're creating it. They're actually creating the resistance. It's like if I shoot you in the foot and then uh, you're bleeding all over the place and I run after you with a Band-Aid and I say, use the Band-Aid. And you say, no, no. And I say, see, I'm trying to help and you won't even let me help. Not even acknowledging that I'm the one that shot you to begin with. Absolutely. And I think that's what we're doing. Uh, we're coming at change totally wrong, I think. Mm -hmm. It strikes me very much like the old saying, if you believe you can, then you can, and if you believe you can't, then you, you can't. Well, Change the, the problem is that they're coming at this through um, the, the underlying belief that if they have a good initiative, if they have a good idea, if they have a good plan, um, and they're getting push from their stakeholders, from the board, from the CEO, from the management, and they want something achieved. They have an assumption that the people underneath them will buy into it because it's being pushed from the top. Mm -hmm. Well, now, that's a great point. And I guess I sit back and wonder, you know, we, we have literally – thousands, and, and I would venture to say tens of thousands of years of amassed leadership experience. You know, if I think about just the, the volumes of books that have been written on change management, that, that topic alone, just all this amassed experience, and yet change management hasn't seemed to really gotten any easier. No, and it's the same with, with the sales model. Um, sales continues to get a 7% close rate, and no matter what technology they use or whether it's consultative sales or it's been selling or family sales or Joe Carnegie, they're still getting the same close. And at no point has the sales group or the change management group ever realized that the model they're using to achieve success is failing. Mm -hmm. Well, so taking that one step further, I mean, I, I want to personally admit, so the, the listeners aren't going to be on their own here, that it seems that the harder that I have in my past experience try to implement what I'll call reasonable or reasoned change management. So in other words, 
you sit back and you come up with this this very fact-based, very logically oriented uh, argument, if you would, or a case to convince people that this is really going to be good for them. The more I do that, the harder and the change is and the more resistance I get. That's because uh, if we can go back to the systems discussion we had last time, um, you are pushing in to a closed system that has its own beliefs and rules and roles and relationships. And it's doing what all good systems do, which is uh, making sure that it's got balance, homeostasis. And whenever anything tries to get into a closed system, the system does its very wonderful job of resisting the change. That's what it's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, now, Sharon Drew, I also noticed that, again, from my personal experience, change management is its a part of the project. It's housed within whatever the initiative is in and of itself. So we put together the, the program. And we, we treat change as a, something that you, you check, on, check off on a list. And we do it as part of our initiative itself. What should we be doing differently to avoid the resistance that we're quite honestly creating? Let's go, let's go back to the buy-in okay. first, okay? Um, somebody did a, a search on the net um, looking at all the literature for change management, uh, and they found one um, instance of the use of the word buy-in. And if you think about all the literature of change management that's on the net and they found one instance of the word buy-in, uh, that's kind of shocking. Um, what's happening is that because we are assuming that we will get resistance, we haven't been looking for a different way to go about doing what we're doing. If our goal was to achieve buy-in, mm -hmm. I have no doubt that people could have come up with other options other than the one I'm recommending. But because they are assuming resistance, they're not. So what's happening, as I said, is they're entering with bias, entering with push, entering assuming resistance, and entering with, like what you, like what you said, they have an idea, they have an initiative, and they want it to occur their way, and so they push. What I'm recommending is the very first thing you do is to get buy-in. And you help the system recognize and manage those issues that would have to take place internally for the system to be willing to accept a change and not have the change totally defined at the beginning but let the people inside the system who will actually be acting on the change, let them become a part of the change, and let them all become, in some fashion, leaders in the initiative. And so then it's happening from the inside out rather than the inside, the, the outside in. Um, sometimes people say to me, but I might not get what I want. Well, it depends what you want. Do you want 
to, I'll make this up, do you want to have better customer service or do you offer better customer service or do you want to offer better customer service the way you want it done, exactly the way you want it done? Because even if the person pushing the change has a vision of what it should look like, there's so much personal and interpersonal resistance internally that you're not going to get what you want anyway. So you have to decide if you want the bigger picture and then let the people inside buy in to the idea and then start creating thoughts around how to accomplish that on their own and then lead them from the inside rather than push from the outside. What do you think? Okay. Well, I want to ask or maybe probe just a little bit more because it almost sounds to me like the change, the seeking of buy-in really ought to happen before the initiative even starts. That's right. Uh, I strongly recommend that um, even with a large company, if you come up with an idea like, and I'll just keep using that analogy, um, we want to end up with better customer, customer service for our customers. Now, you might have a great idea of how you want that to happen with this department and that department. Um, and, of course, there's ramifications throughout all the departments once you push there and push there and pull there. So if you let the people think about the, the possibilities around better customer service, what that would look like, and let them all, the departments, begin to think about what they could do and what it would look like and how they could manage um, new pieces of customer service. And what ends up happening is you end up getting leaders that you would never have thought of as being leaders. Mm-hmm. And you let people create some new initiatives, and frankly, the behavior will end up looking different than what you might have wanted, but the structure will be the same. Let me talk about this for a minute, the difference between structure and content. So if I have an 8-ounce glass, can I put a gallon of water in there? No. 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 That's because the structure defines the content, right? Mm -hmm. Right. You can't put a 20-foot couch in a 10-foot room. The structure defines the content. Where is the control, in the content or in the structure? It's in the structure. That's right. So when you enter a change initiative and you say, I want this done, I want this done, I want this done, I want this done, is that structure or content? That is content. That's content. So the people that have the power are the people that are holding the space, creating the structure, which is the staff. Mm -hmm. If they're the ones creating the implementation through their jobs, through the daily activities, they're creating the structure, and you've got the content, which means the person who's initiating it is out of control. Okay. But imagine if you gave the control back to the people who will be doing their jobs every day. I mean, they're going to be doing the job. Why not give them the opportunity to create the structure and then uh, to create the content and you create the structure? When I ran my company in England, um, I had the opportunity to start up a little company 
And I really did not know. I really didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I, I really didn't know what I was doing. But I created the structure. Here's how we're going to take care of clients. This is as I hire people. And here's how the kind of communication and here's the way we're going to be doing our jobs, and here's what we're going to be respecting. Because I didn't know their jobs. I was running a tech company. I didn't know what the 48 tech people were going to do. As a matter of fact, I was married at the time to a um, pretty high-tech guy, mm -hmm. and he made me a couple of tests that had a thing that I put a thing I put over them with circles, so I could score their results, so I could know how well they did just by checking off how many circles they got right. I had no idea what they were doing. So as long as I created the structure, they could have whatever content they needed with their jobs, and their jobs were very fluid according to what they wanted to do. So they were all leaders, including the receptionist. They were all leaders, and they were all very happy. Yes. So I created the structure, and I let them become leaders in their own content. I think we have it wrong. We're, we're so busy with what we want to have done that we make the people inside nothing but people who will follow us to do what we want and not give them leadership capability. And then so they get annoyed, they push back, and then they leave, or they don't do a good job. Wait. You just described reminded me of, I guess, one of the times where I think I have been most successful as a manager, and I had never thought of it in those terms. But as I reflect back now, I think I did just what you just said. I set the structure, and I let my folks decide the content. It was when I was in the service, and I was a very junior officer, and I re recognized very early on the folks that you know I was working with they knew far, far better what needed to be done and how it was best done than I that's than right. I did, or I that's was ever going to know. So that's I that's right. So I simply set the structure, and my structure was this: I will set the standard by which things have to, to meet, and I'm going to establish priorities and timelines. That's the structure. W within that structure, the content, the how any of this stuff is going to be done? Well, that was that was for the folks to decide, because I I wasn't going to be the best one to try to decide all of the content of the how things were going to be done. I just again my role had to be decide what needed to be done, but the how that was up to them. So I have. Um I don't remember whether I told this story on the last one or not. Um, I told a story about the uh, company that did the, the dog and pony show for 30,000 oh, people. Yes. Mm -hmm. I told that last time. Yes. Well, again, they were they gave a, a, a dog and pony show assuming everyone would buy in, and then the people that didn't buy in were the very foundation of their company, the 10% that had been there 20 years, and they fired them. They fired the whole history of the company because they wouldn't buy into the dog and pony show. Yeah. There has to be a better way to trust that our people know their jobs and will come up with the best plan because we don't do their jobs. I often jokingly, not a joke, I say to people when they're trying to get into the CEO, and I say, well, don't try to get into the CEO. Talk to the, his assistant. 
because she'll know far more than he will. Because she knows everything that's going on in the company. He doesn't. Nobody tells him. Right. And it usually is a him. <laughs> so when we think about change, if we start thinking about do we want what we want or do we want the change to occur in a way that there's leadership and buy-in and no resistance? And imagine what it looks like if there's no resistance. Imagine going through a change where you don't have to have resistance. Okay. So in other words, I think just to maybe summarize what, what I heard you say, Sharon Drew, was we as the change agents simply need to establish the structure and then let those that are our content folks, those that are doing the job, they can establish how the change will take place. That's right. And and I do have a, um, I think I sent you these PowerPoints of the different stages of what you tell your people and how to do it and how you run the meetings and so forth. But And, and I, I'm happy to make those available if people want them. Um, but it very much is inside out. Uh, and what I tell the leader is that you just have to keep the structure tight and firm and clear and fair. Now, Sharon Drew, I want to shift the focus just a little bit because we've talked about resistance and we've talked about push. But one of the other areas we wanted to focus on in this episode was bias. And I first wanted to ask you about the role that bias plays in change management, both from the perspective of our change agent and then from the perspective of the individual's that are being asked to change, or what I like to sometimes call them my changees. Yeah, uh, I use that word too. Um, so we all individually and as a group have biases, beliefs, values, and unfortunately we color our world according to the colors that we like. <laughs> Yes. And so everything sounds and acts and the way we assume it will. And I, mean, I there's a very funny story that I, I know this couple, and uh, they've had this running fight for years about a movie that they saw uh, in their first week of marriage on their honeymoon. And she contends that at the, at the end, the, her, the hero said, don't. And he contended that the hero said, did. And it changed the whole movie in some way for them. And so years and decades later, it was going to be on TV, and they got popcorn, and they sat, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited. <laughs> this is before video. And they waited for the last moment. And then the words came, and, they, and the characters said them, and then the two of them looked at each other at the same moment and said, See, I told you! <laughs> <laughs> So 20 years later, they still heard it the way they wanted to hear it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, we, so we color our world that way. And the problem is when I believe that um, buyers are stupid or resistance has to happen, I bias all of my activities on what I believe to be true. Now, there is a way to get around bias. It's not necessarily simple, but it's certainly easy enough to try. Okay. Um, if you, 
do me a favor. Make a picture in your mind's eye of having dinner with a spouse, a friend, a, a kid. Okay, just two okay. of you at the table, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, if you see both people, that means you're up on the ceiling or on the wall looking down. If you just see one person, that means you're at the table looking over. Yes. Right? yes. So whatever position you are in, switch it. If you are up, go down. If you are down, go up. Can you do that? I can do that. Okay. Where do you have the greatest choice if you need to have choice as to behaviors that you want to change in the middle of your meal? Oh, I would think that you'd have the greater choice if you were actually the participant in the meal rather than watching from afar. No, because then you couldn't see yourself and you could only see the other person. And that means you would be biased. Oh, okay. Sure. Okay. So if yeah. you put yourself up on the ceiling or on a wall, you can see your behavior, and then you can say, Hey, Nathan, your wife's going to get her, she's starting to do her thing with her face. Nathan, stop it right now, Nathan. Don't go into Nathan, stop it. Mm-hmm. Okay? So you've got choice if you're in the witness observer position. Okay. Okay, so one of the things that I teach my clients is, and we have a method that we do this, but if you can recognize internally, and there, and there is a way, it just takes a few minutes, but internally what your internal system, body, neck feels like in self and with the stress in that situation, and then when you take yourself to the ceiling, what the difference is. You can build in a physiologic trigger so that when you're in a bad time or time of crisis or time of choice, you can teach yourself how to go up to the ceiling and look down on yourself, and then it expands the options. Um, I write about this in Dirty Little Secrets, by the way. That's my new book that's about systems and change. But I write about this because... If you, I, I, I show a little cartoon figure um, in the forest looking at a leaf, and mm-hmm. then they, I put that same cartoon figure up on the mountain top looking down at the forest, and there's a fire going on. You can see the smoke, which you cannot see when you're looking at the leaf. Right. So bias shows you at the leaf. It puts you at the leaf. So okay. you can see all the veins and whatever in the leaf but you can't see the fire. So you're biased around one aspect as opposed to understanding the lay of the land. Okay. Okay. Now, it seems to me that bias would be really disastrous for a change initiative if it was the change agent that was biased. The change agent is always biased. Okay. That's one of the problems. First of all, they're biased assuming there's going to be resistance. Second of all, they're okay. biased, assuming that you're supposed to do what I want you to do because I'm the boss and I'm telling you. And I'm biased because I think it's rational. Um, and what is your problem? Um, it was like uh, the the man at Beth Steele, I think I told this story also, that I was working with. And he had uh, 97 people move from all over the country with their families to two cities. 
Burns Harbor and Sparrows Point, and if you ask me where they are, one's in Maryland, one's in um, Iowa, somewhere over there, Ohio, something. And he had everybody move in May. In May. He gave them one month to move. Now, if you were going to move your family, what month would you not want to move? I wouldn't move in May. That's the end of the school you year. wouldn't move in May. It's the end of the school year. Yeah. So that means that everyone had to leave their families behind. Mm-hmm. And the, and the men had to go choose the houses themselves, which the wives were not particularly happy. And, or, the men had to, and most of them were men. This is a steel mill. The men had to, or they had to stay in a hotel room until the kids got through with school. And they didn't give them money to go visit the families. So they were spending months not seeing their kids or their wives. The houses weren't selling. They were, or they had to buy two houses. And the men were falling apart. And when I approached my client about this, I mean, we, we finally fixed it. Basically, all he had to do was apologize, believe it or not. But when I approached him, his face was just splotchy. And he said, I gave them 20000 extra dollars, and they need, I gave them the money, and what's their problem? And I gave them two weeks off to pack, and I don't know what they're complaining about, and who gets that kind of money to move, and I got it. And he was totally biased about what should happen and what it should look like and what their problem was, and he couldn't even hear them because it went outside of his belief as to what was supposed to happen. Yeah. We do that all the time. We bias the situation. We get the problem, and then we have to deal with it, and then we blame the other person. So if we can find a way to get into neutral and get away from our bias, then we can see with clarity all the choices. That doesn't necessarily mean we'll make the right choice, but at least we'll see the range of choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, is there a way that you recommend people, I mean, can, can somebody use, uh, you know, like peers as sounding boards, or maybe they need to have some sort of outside person come in to, to help them to Oh, I do think a everybody needs some kind of a life coach or something. When you ask someone... Um, to do that, it cannot be someone you know or love. I actually have someone like that that I call that's like an enemy. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Because I know this person doesn't particularly like me. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm going to hear stuff that I don't want to hear. And I know that he's going to be delighted to tell me stuff that makes me wrong and whatever, and that gives me the other viewpoint that I wouldn't have had otherwise, and it kills me. It kills me. I sit here and I pull a towel when he does it, and I pace, and I go, shut up, shut up. But, and even if it's not necessarily valid, sometimes it is, I at least get to hear the other viewpoint. But if we're going to ask friends, one of the problems with that is that we bias the discussion because we only tell them what we want them to hear. Sure. Oh, absolutely. That always happens. Now, how do we help the people we want to make the change overcome their biases? Well, I don't think we are. Um, If I say to a group, I want us to have better customer service, I'd like you to spend a week thinking about what that might look like from your job perspective. Mm Mm-hmm. They're actually going into their biases, and 
and then they're bringing all of their thinking together, and then we, we put it together. And in the course of us bringing all the ideas in, I then create ways to help people go into their witness place, into their observer place, so they can look at all the ideas, not just theirs, and put them together in a way that makes sense for everyone. Now, I don't want to get into this now. I just want to mention it briefly, but here's where we get into multi-generational problems because the older people play nice better and younger people uh, take initiative personally better. And then you get into that's mine and that's ours and figuring out how to do that. Mm -hmm. But I think if we can all get into the witness observer place and then hold the structure of what the greater good looks like, then at that point we can start getting rid of the bias. But I think in the beginning you want them to have it. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, I think we've covered resistance, push, and bias that we wanted to tonight. And so I think this is probably a great time for me to remind our listeners that we still have three more podcasts to go in our Making Change Work series. And the upcoming episodes are going to focus on why, if decisions are rational, individuals impacted still resist change. We're going to further explore why buy-in is necessary and how it can be achieved. And then in our final episode, we're going to pull everything together, and we're going to talk about a very radical approach to change management. And by that, we mean real leadership. So, Sharon Drew, I want to thank you again for sharing your time with us, and in particular for sharing your insights on managing resistance, bias, and push. I've Thank really, you. Yeah, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I'm looking forward to our next podcast together. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast. I would like to personally thank Sharon Drew Morgan for being with us today and sharing her insights on the resistance, bias, and push that makes change so hard. As always, we would appreciate receiving your feedback by email at podcast at strategydriven.com. If you enjoyed the show, please consider voting for us on Podcast Alley and visiting our website at www.strategydriven.com. You can find more information about Sharon Drew Morgan at www.buyingfacilitation.com. Until next time, so long.